0: Today we are concluding the sermon series we started about a month ago looking at the question of why. Why do we do certain things in the church and why are we called to do certain things as individuals? Uh, we, we began by looking at uh, Isaiah 6 and the topic of, of worship, why we're called to worship and how we are to be about that. Uh, we've looked at, uh, in John 15, the, the topic of growth. Why are we called to grow and, and how do we go about that? And then last week at service and this week, as you can tell, we're looking at the topic of, of sharing our faith. Um. How do we go about doing that? Why are we called to do that? And today we're going to be drilling down most specifically at what are some of the the core beliefs that we must have to share our faith effectively uh, as God would have us. You know, everybody uh, likes to go to a party, right? And there's all sorts of reasons for parties. We throw parties for birthdays, for anniversaries, uh, for uh, retirement parties after a good long career, for all sorts of reasons that we, we have parties. And for a party to be successful, there's a couple key agreements. One, you need good food, right? Uh, you need people to show up. And for people to show up, they need to be invited. You know, biblically, the, the, the best party and the most important invitation that we will ever receive, according to the Bible, is, is the party that God the Father is throwing for all who believe in Jesus Christ. And the invitation is delivered by none other than Jesus Christ himself. We're told in the scripture that it's a party that will last forever. And that the invitation is good as long as we are alive and have breath. And it's a party for anybody who is willing to accept that invitation and come. You know, yet there's this weird kind of dynamic going on. There are some who have decided that they don't want to go. There are some, of course, who aren't going yet because they haven't heard and don't even know about the party. And then there are some of us who then know about the party, we're going but yet it's difficult for us to kind of, or uncomfortable for us to, to share our faith and talk about Christ, sort of like in the skit. She did it, but it was a little bit uncomfortable, and, but yet she grew through the process. Why is it so hard for us to, to kind of talk naturally with our friends, coworkers, or a stranger in a gym about the topic of Jesus Christ and our faith? Well, this morning we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at that topic about sharing our faith, and, and if you're expecting a how-to seminar focusing on techniques or tools, um, then you're going to be disappointed. Because I believe that those are important, but even more important are, are some of the core beliefs that we need to have scripturally as we launch out and, and share our faith. You see, the, the American church is the most informed church in, in, uh, in history of Christianity. Here in the States, we have access to videos and conferences and speakers and seminars and books and concerts. There are Christian schools all over the place, Bible colleges, seminaries, Christian radio, Christian TV programs, movies. And yet very few of us, it seems to be with all these tools and opportunities, very few of us consistently um, share our faith with others. Why is that? You know, as human beings, at the core of every action we take or don't take, there's an underlying belief that drives that action or inaction. Well, let me explain. When we first learned to swim as young kids, most of our experiences are we come to a pool, mom and dad get in the pool, they tell us to jump in, it's safe to jump in, but we can't be cajoled or bribed or, or threatened to jump in. We don't want to do it right away because why? Our belief is driving our action. It's not safe. It's not a good thing to do. Why would I want to do that? And until our belief changes that it is safe, even a little, we will not go in of our own accord. At the core of every action we take or don't take, there's an underlying belief driving that action. Or how about the fear of heights? About four or five years ago, I was in Chicago. We used to live there, and whenever family would come from out of town or friends, we would take them to the Sears Tower, because that's what you do when you're uh, visiting Chicago. It's now called the Willis Tower. And when we were there four or five years ago, uh, we went to back to it, and if you 've been there, you know it 's the, the tallest building in in the u s the fifth tallest in the world at its height it 's one hundred and eight stories high and One of the cool things is you can go up to the sky deck, which is about one hundred and three stories it 's one hundred and three stories up, and you can walk all around the building and look out and see the Lake Michigan and the skyline just kind of a panorama of of the chicago area uh, if you 've been there, you also know there 's this little platform uh, and it sticks out f- from the edge of the building. And it's an area that maybe 10, 12 people can stand on it. And it's transparent. In other words, you can look down and all you see is air all the way down uh, to, the, to the ground. And I stood there and watched dozens of people walk out there. I myself walked out there. It was a little nerve-wracking, I have to admit. But I watched a lot of people who would walk up to the edge and they would look over and they begin to crawl over. They would dangle their foot over. They just could not bring themselves to crawl out onto that platform. Even though they'd seen dozens of people do it, they knew it was, they knew it was safe, they knew that nothing was going to happen, but they couldn't bring themselves to do it. Their minds kept telling them, it's not safe, don't do it. At the core of every action we take, or don't take, there's an underlying belief um, that drives that action. Same thing happens in relationships. Many of us have an underlying belief that if people really knew us, really understood us, saw who we were in our private moments, in our thoughts or whatever, that they reject us. And so our action is driven by that belief, and we put up walls, we put up barriers, we misrepresent ourselves, we don't really show people who we really are, we don't take risk in those relationships, and the result is we don't have fulfilling relationships. And that will not change until our underlying actions or beliefs change. The same is true in sharing our faith. And today we're going to be looking at three beliefs that we must have if we are to share our faith with Christ naturally and effectively, if we want to be used of God to begin to invite people to join his party in heaven. I'm going to encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to um, 2 Corinthians 5. this is the passage that last week Tammy Swanson-Draheim, our superintendent, spoke from. We're going to jump into this passage, but go beyond it. Uh, It's a great passage about um, sharing our faith. So I encourage you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 14. We'll work our way through the next 7, 8, 10 verses. Verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those (laughs) who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again our first belief that we need to have in place is we need to believe that God can can and wants to reach anybody. Now, that seems like I'm saying the obvious here, and, and maybe I am, but, but remember, our actions reveal our beliefs, what we believe. And most of us would say that, yeah, we believe God can reach anybody, but when we look at our lives, so often our actions say otherwise. Look at Jesus' life and ministry on earth. When he When he walked this earth, he spent... Uh, his, his life on, on earth, um, trying to demonstrate and convince people that God could reach anybody. He hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes. He hung out with the Gentiles and the non-Jews. He hung out with the disabled, the poor, the disenfranchised. And he didn't treat people like projects. And he, he didn't condescend. He didn't come across with a holier-than-thou attitude. He hung out with them, but he also treated them with respect and with love, with dignity, he spoke to them about God's love and grace and mercy, and no one was beyond his reach, and no one was beneath him either. Paul says in second Corinthians 5:14 that Christ's love compels him, it pushes, it pulls, it motivates him to reach out to all people because he is convinced that Christ died for all people. Now we would probably hopefully mentally agree with that that God can save anybody. But does it lead to action? You know, I've shared about a man named Luis before. Luis was a a man that um, several of us met in Ecuador on a mission trip. Uh, Just full of energy and life and charisma. Loved people. Was involved in his church, working with kids and VBS and teaching and went to seminary. But his backstory was that he, before he came to Christ, he was a pimp. He was a drug dealer on the streets. He was a very hard man. And if he'd, he'd still be there, if somebody hadn't believed that, that God could reach him. And because somebody did, his life was changed. Now, now, most of us don't know pimps or drug dealers. And in fact, most of our acquaintances are nice people, good people. Yet sometimes I think we have this notion that nice, decent people are, are harder to reach than those who have bottomed out. Maybe that's the case. Maybe it's not. But it shouldn't stop us from trying. I had a friend in college who was probably more decent and more moral than most Christians that I knew. And yet he just did not see his need for Christ. His life was fine and dandy. Thank you very much. He didn't see his need for Christ. But we didn't give up. We continued to pray for him, a group of us. We shared our faith with him as appropriate. and We tried to model Christ as best as we could with our life and actions and words. And eventually, a couple years later, he did receive Christ. And he continues to follow Christ to this day. Who in your sphere needs Jesus? Do you believe God can reach him or her? Do you act as if you do? We must begin by believing that God can reach anybody around us. Our second belief is number two, believe God can use you. Verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciled the world to Himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against him. and He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. In other words, God has entrusted us with the privilege and the responsibility of inviting people and introducing people to Jesus Christ. We're called Christ ambassadors. In 1 Peter two nine, listen to this description of who we are and our purpose in this world. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why? So that you may, de- you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, think back to, in your you know, in your minds here, think back to some of the Bible stories and characters in the Bible miraculous things happen through a lot of these people. Did God ever ask somebody to do something and then not give them the power and the ability to do it ever did he ever ask somebody in the Bible to do something and then not give them the power and the ability to do it? Do you think we're going to be the only you think we're going to be exceptions to that rule? Of course not. God can and will use you. To make a difference, to to reach people for Christ. But you have to begin by having faith and belief that He can and will use you to do so. Introducing people to Christ isn't something that we do in our own strength or wisdom. We must be aided and prompted and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be effective. We we hear Peter and John and the other disciples preaching and hundreds of people come to faith in Christ. And we read about Billy Graham or Louise Palau and and see how people come to faith in Christ through their speaking but it's not done in their own power. People come to faith in Christ because the Holy Spirit draws them. People come to faith in Christ because somebody was willing to reach out to believe that God could and would use them to do so. The, the director of the Billy Graham Center is a covenant minister, and he tells a story about his two-year-old daughter when, named Tara. When she was two, um, he was watching her for the day, and he had to draw a prophet the, 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 the daycare. Uh, on his way to his meeting. And she was trying to put on her shoes, and, and, and he offered to help her. And she said, no, I can do it myself. And so he waited for a while, as was patient, tried letting her try and try and try, but she couldn't do it. And eventually she gave up in frustration and said, Daddy, I can't do it. And he said, I know you can't, but I can. You know, often the reason we felt sharing our faith with others is because we try to do it on our own without asking our Heavenly Father for His help. We cannot bring somebody to faith in Christ in our own strength. But God, through the Holy Spirit, can and will. God wants to use us to bring other people to Christ. We must be willing and we must believe. A third belief is believe God can do it now. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says... In the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the, day of, the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. In his autobiography, uh, Just As I Am, Billy Graham uh, tells about a conversation he had with John F. Kennedy shortly after he was elected president. Graham writes, on the way back to the Kennedy house, the president-elect stopped the car and turned to me. Do you believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ? He asked. I most certainly do. Well, does my church believe it? They have it in their creeds. They don't preach it, he said. They don't tell us much about it. I want to know what, what you think about it. Graham writes, I explains explain what the Bible said about Christ coming the first time, dying on the cross and rising again from the dead and promising that he would come back again. Only then, Graham said, I, I believe we're going to have permanent world peace. Very interesting, Kennedy said, looking away. We'll have to talk more about that someday, and they drove on. A couple of years later, the two met again, this time at the National Prayer, Bre- Prayer Breakfast in 1963. Graham writes I had the flu, and after I gave my short talk and he gave his, we walked out of the hotel to his car again, which was our custom. And I Kirby turned to me Billy, could you ride back to the White House with me? I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes. Mr. President, Graham protested, I've got a fever. Not only am I weak, but I, I just don't want to give you what I have. Couldn't we wait and talk some other time? It was cold and snowy and Graham was freezing. And the president said, of course, graciously. But the two would never meet again because a few months later, Kennedy was assassinated. Graham comments, his hesitation at the door and his request haunt me still. What was on his mind? Should I have gone with him? It was an irrecoverable moment. Every day God has divine appointments for you and me. Every day we have opportunities given to us by God to to converse with others about our faith, to invite them to begin to explore who Jesus Christ is, to invite them to faith in Jesus Christ. And the stakes are much, much too high to procrastinate or put off or doubt The scripture says now is the day of salvation. There's a sense of urgency. We must begin by believing that God can reach anybody, that God can use us, and that God wants to do it now. And over the course of of the church year, fairly frequently on Sunday mornings, you'll see a a white rose up front on the communion table. And if you've been with us, you know what that means. It represents the the fact that there is an individual or individuals who, who put their trust in Jesus Christ who saw the day of salvation and put their, their trust in Christ. And that's something that we celebrate and we're excited about. But that white rose also represents that there was somebody from our church who believed that God could use them and shared their faith with that person. And as a result, that person, another person came into, into the kingdom. And another person will be at the party. We are called. We are called to be ambassadors for Christ. We are called to invite others to faith in Jesus Christ. We are called to tell others that there is a God who loves them more than they can ever imagine. A God who knows everything about them and still loves them and offers them grace and acceptance and joy and peace. We are called to tell them that he loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us and that he rose again from the dead and that he wants nothing more for us to, to be with him in heaven but as Paul says in Romans ten fourteen, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And regarding inviting people to meet Christ, what are some of your underlying beliefs? Not the ones you say you believe, but the ones that really drive your actions. Things like, if I share my faith, they'll laugh at me. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But Jesus said, blessed are you when you're rejected because of your faith in me. Maybe you're thinking, if I talk about Jesus, people will think I'm weird, a little bit off, a little, a little out of touch. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. God has said, I've loved you with an everlasting love. He's accepted you. Maybe you think they'll, they're not really interested. Maybe they will be interested, maybe they won't. But you'll never know unless you try. The Bible says we are created, all of us are created, with eternity in our hearts. And what that means is that each of us, every human being who's ever lived, has, has, has a place in their heart and their life that's created for God and God only. Eternity in their hearts. Whether they know it or not, whether they admit it or not, they're created with a need for God and for an eternal relationship with him. God loves all people, and he's invited them to his party. And he's sent out his invitation through His Son, Jesus Christ. And now we're given the responsibility and the privilege and the joy of carrying that message, that invitation to those around us. But we've got to believe. We've got to believe that God can and will reach anybody. We've got to believe that God can and will use us. And we've got to believe that God wants to do it, and He wants to do it now. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for um, Your invitation your invitation for forgiveness. Your invitation for peace and joy and freedom. Your invitation for salvation and eternal life. We thank you for that, God. And Lord, we pray that as your people, we would, um, we would believe and see our actions follow. We would believe that you love all people and that you can reach anybody no matter how good or how bad their life is, you can reach anybody. And help us, Lord, also to believe in our and see it work out in our actions, that you can and will use us. And Lord, help us to see as well and believe that, that you want to do it now, that you want to see all people come to faith in Christ. So Lord, help us to be used of you, to see the parting in heaven expanded and grown, all for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.